Uh, it's fantastic, uh, even though we can't be together, even though I'm here and you're there and you're all in different places, uh, yet we can still gather together at this time. We were praying, I was praying earlier and uh, just grateful that the Holy Spirit who is uh, with me, the Holy Spirit who has uh, given us his word, inspired uh, God's word, uh, is also with you. Uh, and as we read the word together and as we study it together, uh, he is uniting us. Uh, it is, uh, it's a hard time, isn't it? Hard time to uh, be apart from each other. Uh, I just wanted to introduce uh, this new uh, mini-series to you. This is the first talk uh, of a four-part series. Of course, there'll be two next weekend over Easter, and then we'll finish it off the Sunday after that. And it is an Easter series. Uh, I'll show you uh, my screen here, and uh, you'll be able to see the... Uh, the idea, sorry, I need to go back. There we go, there's the uh, Easter series, Easter, a matter of death and life. Uh, I think I'm getting some feedback there. Been fiddling with settings. Uh, I think you just need to mute your uh, Mac. Sorry, everyone. Give me the uh, stop sharing. I think it's off. Okay. Uh, anyway, we might have to. I'm not sure if I can continue to share my screen or not. But uh, the, the theme is, yes, Easter, a matter of death and life. And uh, you might notice that I've reversed the normal order of uh, that, that phrase, uh, a matter of life and death. And uh, that's the wonderful thing about Easter. It is the ultimate reversal uh, that at Easter time, we rejoice in the fact, we celebrate the fact that uh, 2,000 years ago, God did something so incredible that whole order of life and death has been upturned and turned upside down. So uh, we're launching into that series this morning. Uh, today's talk from Luke 22, we're going to be covering 22, 23 and 24, as Jesus heads to the cross, from the cross to the grave and then rises uh, from the grave and appears to his disciples. That's our Easter series. And the order is death and then life. And Oh, and there's a sense in, in which that's really true. Uh, but if you notice what we try to do when we have this feeling that life is out of control, uh, I know that I certainly do this and I suspect you do as well. Uh, and that is we try to take control. We try to regain control. Whatever little semblance of control we might be able to get, that's what we try to grab hold of. We do it. Governments do it. We try to exercise control as much as we can over uh, the dominion, over the... Mate, when there are such big things going on around us, we have very little control. That any control we can achieve is actually quite secondary. And I want to help us today to see that that's actually not such a bad thing to realise. 
in fact, to recognise the limits of the control that we have over our lives can be something that helps us to really trust in God, the one who has ultimate control. And I think this chapter of God's word in front of us, uh, Luke chapter 22, we only read the first 13 verses this morning because it's a long chapter. It's about 70 verses long. We're going to just scan through those 70 verses today, though, to see something very helpful for us this morning. And it's it's this. Uh, This chapter is really, you know, kind of two stories woven into one. One hand, we have a whole bunch of different actors uh, trying to take is actually the one who is in control. So whose hands is life in? Whose hands is Jesus' life in? That's what I want us to think together about this morning as we look at this chapter of God's Word. Uh, Now, for several uh, chapters, the storm has been brewing around Jesus. Clouds have been gathering on the horizon and the mood of the gospel is getting darker by the moment. And uh, uh, that's because Jesus is, has been coming into conflict more and more regularly with uh, people in power, uh, particularly with those whose power is being threatened by Jesus. The first group of people we're going to look at uh, this morning are the religious of Jesus' day, the Jewish religious leaders. I'm just going to take you back a few at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. They were looking for a way to kill Jesus. That's how big a threat Jesus had become. They thought the only way to deal with him was to kill him. Uh, In chapter 20, verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. See? They're threatened and they're going to retaliate and try and take control, but they were afraid of the people. Their hands are stayed. They can't quite get to Jesus. And then in chapter 20, verse 20, keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So these Jewish religious leaders who are usually at odds with their, their, uh, the people who are over them, the Romans, are now looking for a way to trap Jesus and hand him over to those very authorities and powers. And why? What's their ultimate goal? Well, we've really already seen it, but here again at the start of chapter the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking out of control when it comes to Jesus. They don't know what to do. They're feeling threatened. And so they're going to try to take his life into their hands. So the first question I want to ask this morning is, is the fate of Jesus in the hands of the religious leaders? Do they have power over Jesus? Are they able to control this situation that they find themselves in? The next character that's introduced in the story uh, here in chapter 22 uh, is actually of a very different nature. 
and that is Satan, uh, God's ancient enemy. Have a look uh, at verse 3. Uh, so the religious leaders are looking for a way to get rid of Jesus, and then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Now, in Luke's gospel, Satan hasn't been heard of for many, many chapters. In fact, way back uh, at the temptation in chapter four, I think it is, uh, when we read there that uh, Satan was going to wait for an opportune time uh, to return onto the scene. And it seems that Satan has found that opportune moment. Uh, and he appears, and he knows that the religious leaders are never going to get the job done on their own. And so he intervenes. It's time for Satan to take charge, he believes, at least. So the religious leaders are trying to take things into their hands. Satan is taking things into his hands. Is the fate of Jesus in the hands of Satan then? Or perhaps the fate of Jesus is in the hands of one of his disciples, in the hands of Judas. Because it's Judas that Satan has entered. And Judas, verse 4, Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted, of course. And they agreed to give Judas money and he consented and he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Now, it would be easy to read those verses and think that Judas is just sort of uh, an unwitting pawn in all this. He's just sort of being driven by Satan. Uh, but I think there's actually a lot more going on here than that. I think, in fact, that uh, Judas's heart is elsewhere, that perhaps Judas's view of who Jesus was meant to be has been challenged and is under threat. Perhaps he has seen that things aren't going the way that he would have wanted them to go with Jesus. Jesus isn't really going to give freedom from the Romans or anything like that and make Israel great again. Uh, and so he's given up his hope in what he thought Jesus offered. Uh, we know from John's gospel uh, that Judas had a special job among the disciples, that Judas was the keeper of the money. We also know from John that all the way along, Judas had been taking from that money to spend on himself. And so it's no surprise that money plays a part in Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Uh, you, I don't know if you've got an NIV uh, version of the Bible there, but I do. And the heading that they've put at the top of this says, Judas agrees to betray Jesus as if it wasn't his idea, but I actually think that's far from the truth. Far from the truth that Judas goes very intentionally to the chief priests and he discusses with them how he might betray Jesus. It's his idea. They agree to give him money, note. Presumably that means he's asked for money. And he says the deal is done. He consented and watches for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them. So is the fate of Jesus then in the hands of Judas? Well, not if another disciple, Peter, has anything to do with it. Uh, flick over uh, to verse 33 and we'll see what Peter does when he feels that his Lord, his Jesus, is under threat. 
Verse 33, but Peter replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter wants to have some say in matters as well. And he's not going to desert Jesus as far as he's concerned. Rather, he he's going to stick with Jesus. He's going to use his hands to defend Jesus. So is the fate of Jesus then in the hands of Peter and perhaps the other disciples? Well, as things, uh, as the story builds and uh, as Jesus uh, finishes the meal that he's been sharing with his disciples, the Last Supper as we know it, and we'll come back to that in a minute, uh, he goes out with his disciples as he has been doing, as has been his practice, uh, goes out to the Mount of Olives and there he spends some time in prayer to his heavenly father. But Judas, Judas knew where he was going. Uh, Judas wasn't with the disciples because he'd gone off to betray Jesus. But now he reappears. Judas's opportunity has come. And so uh, we read in verse 47 that he comes uh, and he brings a crowd with him. While Jesus was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them and he approached Jesus. So Judas and Satan in league with one another and in league with the religious leaders and in league with the they come to take Jesus into their hands. And Judas approaches his Lord, Jesus, and he goes to kiss him. He betrays him with a kiss. And at the end of that scene, Jesus says, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. See, all these hands have come together. They've joined hands to conspire against Jesus, to take him under their control. In fact, even, even Peter has let go of Jesus at this point. As Jesus has predicted, he ends up uh, denying him three times. And Jesus says, this is your hour when darkness reigns. So what does that mean? What does that mean for Jesus and his fate? Does it mean that he has lost control? Does it mean that darkness rules and he has been defeated? But that's where we need to see the other side of this chapter and the other side of the story of what's going on. That everything is, in fact, not as it seems. See, while it looks for all intents and purposes, like darkness reigns, and Jesus himself has said that it does, we also need to note that it is only for this hour. You see that? This is your hour, your time when darkness reigns. And it only reigns because Jesus allows it to reign. Darkness only descends because Jesus allows it to descend. So what I want to do now is take you back through this chapter and show you something very different. That throughout this passage, at least six times I've spotted, and if, uh, I suspect you could probably spot other ways, Jesus reveals that he is very much in control of everything that is unfolding. 
So for example, uh, in the section that Betsy read for us earlier, look what happens as they prepare the Passover from verse 10. Jesus replies, they ask, where do you want us to prepare? And Jesus replies, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and they found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. Now, some cynic might suggest that, oh, well, I guess that Jesus had just made arrangements beforehand arrangements with the owner of the house, arrangements with a guy to be walking along at just the right time with a water jar. Unlikely. What's really going on here is that Jesus is preparing things. Jesus is the one that is preparing this Passover meal because it's not just any Passover meal. It's a very special Passover meal where Jesus is, in fact, going to redefine uh, everything uh, that the disciples had come to understand the Passover was all about. See, the Passover meal had been celebrated by Jewish, uh, the Jewish people for, uh, well, since the Exodus, the days of the Exodus, and it was a time where they looked back, and they looked back to, to see the great rescue of God out of slavery to Egypt, in Egypt. But Jesus, Jesus here is he takes the elements of that meal, as he takes the bread that was part of the meal, and as he takes the wine that was part of the meal, he gives them a new significance. And he says, I want you to look at what is coming. I want you to be able to understand what is coming in the light of this meal. And when you celebrate this meal in future, I want you to be able to look back to this moment, not back to that rescue from slavery in Egypt, but back to a greater rescue that I'm about to accomplish. And so Jesus, with his own hands, he takes the bread and says, this is my body given for you, and this is my blood shed for you. Jesus is actually doing is saying to the Jewish nation, and in fact, to all people who would belong to God, that this is the focal point. This is the center of history. See, Jesus isn't just in control of this moment. Jesus is saying that all of history comes down to this moment. You'll notice also uh, in verses 14 to 18 that Jesus knew that this was his last meal. He knew what was up ahead. He knew that this was coming. Verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus and his disciples, they reclined at the table and he said, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. But I tell you, I won't eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you, for I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus knows what is up ahead and he is ready for it. He has planned for it and he is preparing his disciples for it as well. Not only does he know that, but he knows how it's all going to map out. He knows how it's going to unfold. He knows what Judas is up to. He knows the plot. He says, as he passes the bread and the drink around, verse 21, the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. 
the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. See, God has foreordained this moment and Jesus is in step with his Father. But woe to that man who betrays him. Jesus knows what's going on for Judas. He knows what's going on behind the scenes, but he also knows that he is doing the decreed will of God in this. Uh, fourthly, the fourth uh, sign that I've seen in this passage that Jesus is very much in control of things is the concern that he shows for his disciples in this moment. And he's very gentle with them. Uh, there's a point in the meal where somehow or other a dispute arises and this tended to happen among the disciples about who was considered to be the greatest. Can you believe they were arguing about this at this moment? And man, Jesus could have lost it, couldn't he? But instead, Instead, he doesn't. He just offers them the most gentle rebuke, the most tender concern. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, he says in verse 25. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Don't be like them. Follow me. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Isn't that what Jesus is showing them for who is greater the one who is at the table or the one who serves not the one who at the table but who's at the table but the one who serves and you are those who have stood by me in my trials isn't that generous of jesus to say that even though he knows what is up ahead and that's where we turn now to what is up ahead jesus goes to the garden and yet he is not trapped in that garden. He goes knowing how things are going to unfold and in control of them. Incredibly, this crowd comes to arrest him. Uh, one of his disciples tries to defend him, but Jesus calls a stop to it. He just calls no more of this in verse 51. He takes control of the situation and he touches the man's ear who has been uh, wounded, and he heals him. And then he says to the chief priests and officers and the temple guard and the elders, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me. See, Jesus is saying, I will come with you. I will hand myself over to you because that is my free choice to make. Now, pointing out that Jesus knows how all this is going to unfold. And in fact, Jesus seems to be in charge of how it unfolds. Could make it sound like, I don't know, like it's kind of easy for Jesus. And somehow he's just kind of the master of the situation and he's got it all covered. But man, that is so far from true. This is not easy for Jesus. It's not easy for Jesus to hand himself over, to give himself up. What, what great self-control he requires to do that because the reality is that Jesus could have said, no, that is the power that he has. Jesus could have taken a different path. But as he prays in the garden to his father, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus has control, but he also hands that control over to his heavenly father. He also submits his will 
to the will of his father, which actually just shows how great his control over this is. You know, if ever there was a moment when the world, the whole world seemed to be spinning out of control, then this was it from one angle. But look again. Look again. The fate of Jesus is in the hands of Jesus. Do you see it? It's not in the hands of the religious leaders. It's not in the hands of Satan. It's not in the hands of Judas. The fate of Jesus is in the hands of Jesus. In fact, in fact, it's the opposite to what it might seem because it's not only the fate of Jesus that is in the hands of Jesus, it is the fate of the world that is in the hands of Jesus. The fate of Judas, the fate of Peter, your fate and my fate is in the hands of Jesus right in this moment because it's only Jesus who has the power to hand over his life and it's only God who has the power to raise Jesus from the dead and all of that because Jesus is the one who serves. Because Jesus is the one person who uses his awesome sovereign control, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of others. That is our God. That is how he works. That is why Jesus came so that he could be a servant, so that he could use his power and control in the world in love for us. That's what unfolded in those early hours of that morning, that Friday morning. And what was true on that day, that the fate of the world was in the hands of Jesus, is just as true today. And if you are in the hands of Jesus, then no matter what is happening around you or even what is happening within you, then you are in safe hands. Everything, in fact, is as it should be. Not as we, as we would want it to be, not as we would have it be, but as it should be, as God has decreed that it will be today. Today is the day that the Lord has made. And he invites us to put our trust in him because then no matter what comes today, we can rejoice and be glad in it. We heard last week that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. And this is part of the Bible. And, and this time of the year, this time of Easter is a time of year where this is confirmed to us so powerfully because if God could bring good from the cross, if God could bring good from the betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter, if God could bring good to people like you and me out of those circumstances, then he can bring good from anything. He can bring good from our current circumstances. In fact, he's determined to do so. That this experience that we're all having of the, the coronavirus and all that it means for us of being cut off from family and friends, facing financial hardship, whatever it means for you, God intends it for good. And he will achieve his good. And it's time that we really trusted him to do that. 
But it's hard to do, isn't it? To really do, to really trust Jesus in these circumstances and not just go with the flow and try to take control and try to and just moan and grumble and complain about our circumstances rather than actually trusting that this can be for our good, especially when we're surrounded by so many messages that our lives are in our hands and we have to take responsibility for them. So here's a tester. As, as you've increased your social distancing measures, and I'm sure you have, has there been a corresponding rise in your spiritual approaching measures? Do you know what I mean? You know, have you taken the opportunity that this, yes, this extra time and this solitary time provides to spend time with God? You don't have to remain distant from him. Are you talking to him? Are you sharing your worries and your concerns and the things that you're trying to take control of? Are you taking them to him and acknowledging and resting in the fact that they're actually in his hands? Are you reading God's word to have your mind shaped by it rather than by the circumstances around you? Are you, are you reading the word rather than reading the world? I know how tempting it is to just kind of follow the news every waking moment. What's the latest? What's changing? Where's the tally? All that kind of stuff. But what we really need to be doing is have our minds and our hearts shaped by God's word in all of this so that we're reminded that he is in control and he can be trusted. Our lives are in his hands. As you've increased your sanitation measures, I don't know exactly how you've been doing that, but we've been told, wash our hands incessantly, wash everything, don't touch anything. As you've increased your sanitation measures, have you become more attentive to your sanctification measures? We read last week that God's purpose, our good, is to be conformed to the likeness of his son, to be sanctified, made holy. Are you seeing this time as an opportunity to grow in Christ? Are you recognising where you need to grow? Are you acknowledging where you're broken, where, where you're not trusting in God and looking for him and the strength of his spirit to work on those things, confessing those things to him? As we feel in this moment very keenly the reality that life is out of our hands, I want to ask you this morning, Whose hands do you really want it to be in? Do you want it to be in your hands? Or do you actually want it to be in Jesus' hands? I hope the answer is you want it to be in Jesus' hands because it is. So let's trust him with our lives. Let's trust him with our, the life hereafter, which was guaranteed at the cross and in the resurrection. And let's trust him with the life here and now that he's given us for our good, to grow us to be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that uh, our lives are not in our own hands. And forgive us for all the ways, large and small, that we, perhaps not even realising it, act as if somehow our lives are in our hands. Father, help us to see that it is far better, 
far better if we're able to hand ourselves over or acknowledge the reality that our lives are in fact in your hands. And that's where rest and peace, that's where growth and love can be found. Father, fill us with the hope that comes from truly trusting in Jesus, both for this life and the life to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.